Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. This podcast presents the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to role-playing game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the generous contributions of the panel speakers and of Double Exposure with their amazing game design convention, Metatopia. Episode 120, Game Master Mechanics. Recorded at Metatopia 2016. Presented by Vincent Baker and Jason Pitt. Apologies for some sound quality issues, but the content is very interesting. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Uh, this is a panel about GM mechanics because they're fascinating, and I have an excuse to be on a panel with Vincent Baker, so we win. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, my name is Jason Pitt from Justice of Legend Publishing. Uh, I'm a small publisher who is fascinated by GM mechanics. <laughs> Um, I'm Vincent. I also am fascinated by GM mechanics. Alright, so GM mechanics. I think it would be safe to say that we've had a robust tradition of setting up rules that restrict the behavior of players. <laughs> um, up to and including the caller of no, none of you get to speak to me. Only that person can talk. Um, but in terms of GM mechanics, there's been a long tradition of treating the GM as co-designer and therefore saying, uh, do whatever you need to do. Here's a bunch of tools at your disposal and we're going to walk this away and uh, good luck. The thing that fascinates me is the increasing use of directed focused mechanics and rules and creative constraints placed on GMs so that they are GMing and making their various decisions in certain directions uh, and it gives them something to play off and some just general guidance. Uh, here is a mechanic such as uh, you know you must use a, a dread tower uh, this is going to force you to play, present this tone in play because the mechanics in place are restricting what you can do. You can only say, pull from the tower. So it, you, you're limited to what tools are at your disposal and it reinforces certain tones. It's a terrible example, but it is an example. Um, so, uh, what about, what's the earliest interesting GM mechanic that you can think of? Uh, my personal, like, the oldest game I know is, um, Moldbank, maybe 1981 or 83 or whatever that is. And I'm pretty sure it tells the GM what to do. I'm pretty sure it says, you know, this monster has this many points. Here's what happens when a monster has this many points. I'm pretty sure it includes rules like that. Um, I'm, it, I say I'm pretty sure. Um, it, um, it starts with rolling dice where everybody can see them. Like, 
think. Yeah, it might. Um, like once you're doing that, which goes all the way back, of course. Yeah. Once you're doing that, the GM is playing by rules. Um, uh, doesn't isn't that the is that multi or menser when you start in media rest? In Molde, you start with you've arrived at the at the dungeon entrance. Right, that's a GM constraint. Yeah, your initial framing must be this. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So I don't think I don't think there's a beginning to it. Yeah, right, right. It's just there's these fashions. It, it, yeah, it's something that hasn't been consciously paid attention to to the same extent as how far can your character move? Yeah. How many torches can you carry in your backpack? Which has been because, quite frankly, uh, if you're going to focus your design attention, are you going to focus on the one person at the table or the other five people at the table? If all the players are playing in the right direction, the GM can adapt to that easily. If you're only constraining the GM and not constraining the players, mayhem. So uh, I can easily see where people would triage and focus on player rules to start. Uh, but it leaves a lot of gems high and dry. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, what about more recent examples that you can think of? Um, GM rules? Yes. Like all of the game? Yes, yes. <laughs> um, I don't know, what about them? Like, what about, what games do you want to talk about? Uh, let's go I can talk with about my games. Yeah, yeah, let, let, yeah about let's, go with, games. let's go with your games to start. Okay. Uh, because they're a really robust foundation. Okay. Um, the thing I love about Apocalypse World is that you very clearly write down what the rules are and make certain things that were implicit obligations explicit. Yeah. Um, so could you elaborate more on that? <laughs> well, that comes out of, out of conversations I was having with um, uh, a lot of people, but sort of notably John Harper back in 2008-2007. Um, does anybody know the game 316? Um, by uh, Gregor Hutton. 316 is a fantastic game, in my opinion. But it completely polarized my play communities. Everybody I talked to about games, everybody we played um, back at Forge booth at Gen Con in 2008, that game divided us really cleanly into, this is one of the best games, and this game doesn't tell you how to play. Um, and the conversations that came out of us grappling as a community, as a small community at that point, with this game uh, really led to what I wrote in Apocalypse World. Does everybody know what I wrote in Apocalypse World? I don't want to presume. Well, I would ask what you, what specifically uh, you pointed to in Apocalypse World. There was a lot of words there. <laughs> so for the podcast, what are you referring to specifically in Apocalypse in World? Apocalypse. Because there's a lot of words. Particularly yep. the agenda, the principles, the moves, the, the always say rule for the GM in Apocalypse World. And I don't want to leave anybody behind, but if you all know what I'm talking about, I won't, I won't go too much into it. Uh, because that's what I thought was not missing from 316, but the difference between those of us who loved 316 and those of us who couldn't figure out how to play it is that those of us who loved it could read from it somehow the agenda, the principles, the moves uh, that the GM needed to follow in order to make that game 
super fun, which I always thought was. Um, and so that's where those came out of in Apocalypse World, is trying to communicate to my friends what is great about 316. Um, and they aren't the same as Apocalypse Worlds. I don't think any two games agenda principles and, and moves for the game uh, need be the same. You know, some games might, but, um, but just figuring out how to say, here is what you have to prioritize as a GM. Here is where you have to be shooting for. Oh, and here is what you have to be playing to find out. Um, here is what you, what you, where you don't put your thumb on the scale is because you want to find this out. Um, that comes right out of those conversations about the But what about my GMPCs that I preserve forever? Well, oh, I can't. I'm not allowed. About them. Crap. Um. Uh, this, this this is a constraint. It is a constraint. It is. It makes for better stories. Well, but my darling, my bar, darling got shot in the head with a sniper rifle. They totally deserved it. The players did it. Yet they were right. But yeah. What do you, what do you say? Uh, crosshairs. Oh uh, yeah, looking at the looking, looking at the NPCs through crosshairs. Yep. See, that's the thing in Apocalypse World, but that doesn't need to be in any given game. But it's a very clear example very of clear example. that's a GM constraint. Yeah. You're not allowed to meddle uh, when the players decide, oh, we're just going to take out right. an NPC. Your three harm is three harm, and Bremer is screwed. Yep. Now, you get to make all the ramifications of that disaster. <clears throat> That's where you get your tools. Have fun. Yep. Um, but, yeah, and that's the kind of mechanic that grabs my attention. And I've been running with super hard. Um, so, did uh, Aegon come before or after 316? I don't recall oh. the reference date. Way before. Way before. And by way before, I mean two years before. Oh, okay. <laughs> no. Not way before. So, so we're pointing at John Harper for the antagonist pool budgeting. Yes. Which I is. think... Oh, no, I'm going to get this. No, I'm not going to get this wrong. Um, Primetime Adventures came before Aegon. And that has a GM budget. Yeah. Wait, is that what you were going to talk about? Well, GM specifically highlighting a the very very constrained nature of it. Like I, I feel, PTA has a lot more. He's a lot more generous in the economy, so it isn't sure. as constrained as opposed to this is all you have. Right. Um, and right. so the antagonistic uh, element of that. Right. Um, it, it makes it feel like a different piece to me. Do you want to? But who's played Aegon by John Harper? Okay, you should you should explain how that works. Uh, so uh, I've only played one. As a general principle, uh, Aegon is a game about playing uh, effectively three heroes, yeah. uh, dealing with you know the uh, labors of Hercules, taking down a lion, proving how heroic you are, and the GM has a very specific. Uh, constrained budget on how hard the various conflicts can be. Now, it's cumulative, right? Like, I, I have 60 points or something to spend over the course of the game, is that I, I, I think so, if I recall correctly. Um, I haven't dug into it recently. Um, I really need to run a campaign, I'm just young. 
Um, but uh, yeah, so the uh, GM carefully building opposition that matches and is appropriate with these specific kinds of uh, heroes you play, creating them as almost a dramatic foil. Um, that's all incentivized based on the very restricted GM resources available. Um, and I loved seeing that continue uh, down the lines with a number of other systems. Um, Marvel Heroic does this with the Doom Pool, for instance. Um, there's, I mean, a lot of the 4E encounter building, I suspect, is strongly based on that. Um, because there's a lot of, there was a, there was a lot of, we are paying attention to the indie scene when 4th edition D&D was designed. Um, and it actually has very clear GM direction to do a very specific style of thing in a very clean way with clear expectations. Uh, if you're looking for that specific experience. So, what are your thoughts on limited resources? Uh, well, it depends on what you're planning to find out, um, as, I, as I reflect. Um, in Aegon, you're planning to find out if the characters are heroes, right? Or can be heroes, yeah. become heroes. Isn't that right? I, I, is it which of them is the most heroic? Oh, maybe you're... you're uh, which of them is the best hero? And in that case, it really does make sense. Um, before we talked, I was like, I have opinions about limited GM five minutes. But in, in Aegon's case, and, and my general opinion is that I'm cool as a GM when I'm running a game. I would rather have a budget per encounter. Um, but that's that's such a general preference. I also prefer dice plays, right? Um, it's such a general preference. <laughs> I'll talk about dark in the menu in a minute. Um, but but to say which of the heroes is the greatest, and playing to find out which of the heroes is the greatest, it makes sense to have both an endpoint and a, this really level playing field, the or an intentionally uh, unlevel playing field, where, well, this one's only dealing with easy challenges. Really? That's they don't get as many points, but they win. Huh. They win consistently, whereas this one is got stomped by the giant troll. Mm. Are they really a hero? I mean, they lost. against something really hard. Like, that's the, the GM's call yeah. is how to, how to yeah. pitch the, the ball and the heroes. That's pretty interesting. Especially when you have a series of them. So easy, easy, super hard. Hard, uh, medium, easy. Huh. Though, yeah, where those levers get toggled is... That's me. That's me. Good job, John, John Harper. <laughs> um, it feels almost like there is John Harper's ghost here. Like false ghost, which who you're constantly asking about stuff. Uh, and he yeah. just... I mean, you may not know this, but John Harper's a really influential thinker uh, about these games. And his designs really... Uh, and his running of 316, like, 
that Barkley sort of goes back to John Harper running 316 and Ryan Miller coming and saying, oh my god, that's something I can't hear about this game. Um, I mean, plays in the dark. Well, we'll see, John Harper. <laughs> when published, <laughs> will. I don't, I don't want to claim Blake in the Dark as the most influential game ever until it's published. I'm pretending he can hear me. <laughs> he might hear you in the future. Um, oh, this is being recorded. Hi, John. It's what the, like, Hi. Yeah. I run the podcast. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so Blake in the Dark is a beautiful example in that it's running with this ball. Um, and there's a number of interesting economies going on in Blades of, Blades of the Dark. For instance, in Blades, you're playing a, bear, a crew of scoundrels of some variety, and uh, there's a limited uh, amount, of, amount of turf slash location slash territory that are available for <coughs> political factions. If you take uh, this den of vice, then you're taking it from the blue coats. Now we've got a conflict between the two of you because there's limited space. Wow, and that's a number that I have on a sheet of paper in the game? Uh, yes. That's fantastic. Uh, now, you do that, you weaken this, the hold on the blue coats. That means that the blue coats drop in status and now they're vulnerable. So now uh, the other groups can be trying to snipe them and different political dramas emerge from there. So now as a GM, you're being told explicitly so, make the blue coats desperate, uh, and make these other two factions buddying up with the PCs because it helps take down the blue coats, and then they can scavenge things off the corpses of the blue coats. Good God. Damn you, John Harper. Um, and there's a number of other elements to the system, like the stress economy and trauma. Uh, coins where, uh, like, the way that you improve your gang functionally comes up to uh, pissing off other factions and doing the heists that work against them. That gives you a reputation that lets you improve the size of your Merry Crew of Scoundrels at the expense of other Merry Crews of Scoundrels and climbing the status ladder, increasingly building a group of disgruntled uh, smaller factions in your wake. Who are all gunning to take you down? So, does the GM's budget grow as you? Uh, it, does the game have an explicit budget, or does it have a? The, the GM doesn't have as much of an explicit budget so much as the the opportunities to. Uh, strike at the PCs increase along with their power. So they get increasing vulnerabilities and responsibilities that correspond with their increasing status. So it's like uh, like an implicit budget. Yes. An yeah. Budget. Um, yeah. I was actually going to say I, what you're um, sort of gunning out there makes me think again of 316 because there are directions, not explicit, but there are directions in the rule book you spend this many monster tokens in this scene, this many in that scene, and you hold these in reserve for the big fight. Yep. And then you have a few more for the mop-up. So that he's telling you, build a narrative arc with where you put the resources, but it's much more loose, where it sounds like something that plays in the dark could have it more mechanized, right? Or am I 
yeah, I mean, there's so many ways to mechanize this, but yeah. It, uh, well, I, another beautiful example is in 316, spoilers, uh, when you go up the ranks, you have different orders from high command. The orders at the top of high command are not quite as kind towards their subordinates as you might otherwise prefer. So that shapes the narrative arc just by making in the priorities of the people in the hierarchy. Um, God, I want to play that game. <laughs> that... <clears throat> Alright. Um, I haven't played that game for a long time. So, uh, another game, a uh, new one that um, has a really interesting uh, mechanical framework for the GM is Headspace yeah. uh, by Green Hat Designs. Uh, in that, there's a uh, set of nested clocks which are in no way stolen from Apocalypse World slash Plays in the Dark. Um, and uh, can't steal ideas. Borrow. Liberate. No. Whatever word you prefer. Be inspired. Um, uh, inspired by that. Anyway, go ahead. Yes. So, um, so the GM creates a projects with slices and sub-steps underneath those projects. So these are countdown clocks for the specific elements of these larger corporate projects. So every procedurally, every session, you either add a new project or advance all the projects. Uh, so uh, I, I don't know much space. What that sounds to me, I mean, I, I know of I know of space. Uh, hi, Mark. Um, what that sounds to me like is that the GM is creating for the players an explicit project uh, of obligations, of, yes. of, of uh, uh, directions of, of uh, pursuits. But it's also the inverse, because the players are deciding which things they're taking down and which things they're leaving open. Mm-hmm. So, Isn't the time budget? Uh, it's functionally time budget. So every session you're either making a new project or advancing all your existing projects. So the GM mechanic is effectively saying uh, hold them in every direction to force them to split up, which reinforces the themes of a you know piece of cybernetic neural tech that lets you share skills. So it's effectively divide and conquer is baked into the incentive structure from projects. That's really cool. Yep. Um, thank you, Rob Dockey. Um, but yeah, so that's an interesting narrative structure built, built on the GM tools and the GM incentives. Uh, so uh, you were going to talk about dogs in the vineyard. Yeah. And budgets associated well, with Well, so Dogs in the Vineyard has a, a per encounter budget, let's say, um, where you create your NPCs. You're actually desperate to have numbers in the book for your NPCs because otherwise you have to spend a lot of time thinking about it. And so it provides those um, in a couple of different ways. Uh, but so it's kind of, it's a, a per encounter budget, uh, which is really there as a convenience for the GM more than a um, but then also that's in the context of very procedural creation system 
that if the GM isn't following those town creation rules between sessions, the rules for prep, um, the game, the rest of the game doesn't reliably work. It really depends on, it's really designed assuming that the GM is going to follow those rules precisely every time between, between sessions. Uh, so that's very fun. So that's oh, sounds, that sounds like town creation is a core GM mechanic. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, somebody, oh, I wish I could remember who, somebody said that it was really interesting about that game that your agenda principles and moves as a, as a GM are different when you're prepping than they are when you're playing. And I thought that was fantastic insight, potentially very fruitful insight. But I haven't figured out how to find my events like that. But I need to and keep that in mind. Thank you, whoever that was. Sorry, I don't remember. Um, another thing I found with dogs, uh, with dice pools, was effectively the more uh, useful the dice, the more dramatic those things re will represent. So you're allocating drama and emotional attention. Yeah. Which is, oh, you mean I've got an emotional attention and drama budget? Good God. Huh. With the, because, oh, this NPC has a lot of ammunition against the dogs, so they've got something very sympathetic. Therefore, why is it sympathetic? Oh, because a terrible accident did something to their child. Oh, that's terrible. Now you're really sympathetic to this poor, you know, Smith. Yeah. 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 Uh, um, yeah. Actually, a question about about dogs. One of the things that I really love about it is that the constraints that it places on the GM allow the GM to swing for the fences <laughs> against the PCs without worrying about killing them all in a kind of extremely unfun way. Yeah. Like it'd be very easy for a DND. To the floor of the PCs and it would be terribly boring. But um, how did you. Could you talk about that for, for a moment, I guess, right there? Well, that all, I think, hinges on what you're trying to find out. Um, the game is at every stage, and I didn't have this vocabulary when I wrote Crocs in the Middle to say, here's what you're playing to find out. Um, and I'm not positive I would have told you the truth in that text. Uh, I'm not positive I'm going to tell you the truth now about what you're playing to find out. I'm going to tell you the truth. It's um, how do the can the can the player characters reconcile their actions with their faith? Um, is what you're playing. Is there what? Their actions with their faith. Um, but so playing to find that out, like the whole game is designed really to that, and there's there's nothing else for that design to do than answer, like drive play toward that question. And so, with that focus in mind as I'm designing it, um, there's sort of no choice but to provide ways for the GM to swim for the fences. There's no, no choice but to create those, those systems of conflict resolution systems of escalation mechanics um, to make that possible. Because you know the one thing that design can't do is put its thumb on that scale. Um, 
Does that make sense? Does that answer yes. your question? Was your question how did I do it or why did well, I do it? Well, maybe was... a little of how. Maybe I, I'm just I was interested to hear you, you know, ruminate on that a little bit. I guess. So the, the how question. Sure, sure. Um, the how question is just uh, an idea and then iterating the yeah. process and then idea and iterating the process. But that was the that was the structure that made that possible. And that was the structure that demanded it. That was the structure that I couldn't publish the game unless it did, it did exactly that. So, so uh, you mentioned D&D. In fourth edition D&D, actually have really specific rules for use the, this counter budget, use this kind of monsters. Uh, don't 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 go outside this level range. And then you can theoretically play them as part against the pieces of possible and aim for them. In, in interest of tackling encounter, which would succeed very quickly. Um, but do you think there's a problem outside of the, the indie game, the more indie game space, the more story game space, where uh, people are more receptive to what the book actually says and go, hey, GM, don't just make stuff up. Do this. Like, follow these rules. Whereas in Dungeons and Dragons and other more tried games, people have gotten rule zero or hammered their head so far, like, that, no, you don't you, you want to be the GM. You're a code designer. That it's harder to get people, to get GMs to, to get used to following GM rules, whether it's running something something set in Tolkien-esque Eurolandia, that is when they're running something really specific from like Aegon or uh, or Dogs or Bogdor. I can talk about myself as a GM. Um, I'm sure that the GMs out there fall everywhere, you know, uh, like along that spec or whatever, whatever. However, we're mapping, however we're plotting GMs on the graph, but. For me as a GM, I'm desperate for somebody to tell me what my job is and somebody to give me my tools to, to make that job happen. And so at least when I design games, my I'm not trying to reach the GMs who are all stacked. You know, I'm trying to reach the GMs like me who uh, want to know something new to do. Who want to who want to um, engage with these mechanics the way they're expecting, not the way I'm expecting. Do you know what I mean? Um, but I'm sure individual GMs like all all the way across that. And it's not my job to make somebody who doesn't want to play my game play my game. It's my job to make my game playable if somebody wants to. You know, what I mean? um, for the GMs who want to play my game, I give them what they need, rather than to to try to constrain the GMs who don't want to play. It. That's what I mean. Does that answer your question? Am I not talking to Oh, I just uh, you're writing. So the games that you're writing, uh, like when it comes. So I'm obviously writing people who are going to play them, but it does. I was just wondering because. Fourth edition D have had similar rules like, hey, do this, and they just won't roll the And yeah, like, like there's obviously I like fourth edition. There's obviously a backlash against it, and and obviously fifth edition's gone in a much different direction. And I was just wondering if you think that this this sort of community, like people who, people who are willing to buy games that aren't and know that there are games out there that aren't about uh, that aren't Dungeons and Dragons, that aren't one of the big, I guess. Calling them tenfold games a little bit over the top for RPGs because time. But you say games, but I'm pretty sure you're talking 
Dungeons and Dragons only. <laughs> the rest of us are just in Dungeons and Dragons chat. That's fair. Um, so, the thing I find is, I think the backlash is not about the limited budget. The backlash is about the rules that uh, force the narrative instead of the narrative uh, that is constrained by the rules. Like, I, I think it was saying, you ha you get uh, one level one, one CR five, two CR threes, and uh, five uh, CR twos. Now, pick something in the monster manual that fits these categories. Who cares about the story? Who cares about the plots, the cultures? No, just we, we need things that fill, fit in these buckets so it's balanced. And I think that's where the backlash was because it was so, it was based on apply this formula, then come up with an excuse in the fiction instead of follow the fiction and use these formulas to inform how you can do so. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I want to talk about a game, if I may, and I'm staring right at Julian on Elmbow. I want to talk about a GM mechanism in your game, Steelway Joy. May I? Sure. Okay. There's this fantastic piece in Steelway Joy. Um, uh, does everybody know the game Steal Away Jordan? What is it? Oh, Steal Away Jordan. Um, it's a game about slave narratives. You create a slave narrative, yeah? Okay. Shout out if I'm stupid, because I'm prepared for that. Um, and so the GM is a GM, and the players, we are playing slaves in the South, in America. Um, but there's this incredible moment in character creation where the GM has to leave the room while we talk about our plans and our goals. We keep those secret from the GM. And it's this, this incredible uh, little but impactful constraint on the GM. Um, amazing piece of technology. So, I don't remember what I was going to say. There that, also, is there also like a naming so, mechanic that is also super impactful? It is, but there's nothing like... That, the, the, yes. the GM doesn't get to know. The GM just does not get to know your plans. And um, has to play the game not knowing your plans, and you always have that little piece of power um, yeah. over, the, over the GM. That little piece of... of uh, Particularly in this game, really important this little piece of self determination. Great, yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite games, Julia. I don't know if you knew that. I learned it from watching you. Thank you. Don't do that. Along the same lines, there's a couple other games that do some things that are interestingly similar and divergent. So, uh, Doggy Dog has some really interesting GM mechanics. Mm -hmm. uh, functionally, the GM is punished if they do not apply these laws, uh, the rules that are established by the um, colonial uh, oppression and colonialism. Does everybody know Doggy Dog? People, uh, so, Doggy Dog is a game about colonialism and assimilation, uh, and uh, by Liam Burke. 
And it's interesting in that everyone has a resource. Uh, you receive this currency by following the rules. Uh, if uh, everyone is playing um, the uh, natives, with the exception of the richest player in the game. Yes, player. That's uncomfortable. Yep. Uh, and this is the way that you win as a native in square in scared modes. Uh, you follow all the rules that are established by the colonizing power. And then you steal these tokens from the GM. And when the GMs have tokens, they lose. Because you've assimilated completely. Otherwise, they, they will force you out, and uh, they'll functionally wind up killing you because you broke all the rules. So, yeah, yeah it's brutal. <laughs> and it tricks you. And it also tells you as a GM, uh, set up situations um, to make it hard for them to integrate to make it hard, so that they have to go the extra mile and punch themselves even harder. Because you want to continue going as the as a colonizing force. You don't want them to actually assimilate. So it says, keep going harder, go harder, go for the gut punch. It's a sharp design. It's a, it also intentionally uses dysfunctional GM uh, behaviors as the framework, which is just delightful. Like, GM fiat. If you don't like how what happens in a conflict, the GM can just say what happens and ignore what, how would the dice say. It's okay. very uncomfortable to GM, I suppose. Yep. Intentional. <laughs> um, and uh, another similar one on the secret side of things is Blood Red Sands by Rockmaza Galileo Games. That is a game of... Um, I always call it diplomacy, the role-playing game, in that it is competitive Dark Sun uh, trying to take down the Witch King. It's got this long tournament system. It's interesting. But the fundamental core to it is uh, you've got four mighty heroes who go into towns and deal with issues on their path towards taking out the Witch King. Uh, so you get one player... And effectively, everyone else is filling the GM role uh, for each session. So the hero goes to the bar and drinks for half an hour, whereas the other three uh, co-GMs conspire to make the antagonism and have their own like little bidding game for how much resources they can use to strike out or seduce uh, or uh, interfere with uh, the hero. So you conspire, you create your really messy town. Sounds familiar. Um, and then the hero comes in and you all smile. Welcome to this lovely city in the desert. We're going to cut you. And you go through it. And all of those co-GMs are incentivized because when they're not being GM, they're playing their own heroes who are competing with that hero. Oh. Yeah. Oh. So we're going to stab you. So my hero's more successful in that other city where you're going to be taking vengeance on me. Speaking of swinging for the fences. <laughs> yeah, that's neat. That's yeah. Neat. Where you have these 
interest in this arena that you can play out in this other arena. That's neat. Good job, bro. We might have sort of swung back around to the question I was going to ask earlier. How do you feel about burning empires, where there's a strong currency for GM, a strong currency for the players, and they're actually told, go to war with each other, play to win, GM play to beat the PCs, PCs play to beat the GM. I love role-playing games with winning and losing. It's one of my favorite things right now. It's one of my love, love, love. Um, and I confess, I'm sorry, Luke, I haven't played Burning Empire, but so I can't, I can't speak to. It. <coughs> but a game where I'm trying to win and you're trying not to lose, you know, and I have, I have my resources and you have your resources, and we're gonna find out which of us wins. I love that. I love that. Uh, it's so clean. There's nothing like as a designer, like when the first time I wrote in a game. Um, to win in a role-playing game, to win, here's what you have to do. Uh, I was like, this changes everything. I'm never going back. So clean. Uh, so uh, precise. Uh, play to find out. Yeah. So clarifying. So I see the competitive comment. I'm looking at the other half of Burning Empires because I actually did play in a campaign that it was exciting and it's a lot of system, but it's super interesting to see all the gears. Um, there's a budget on and limitation on what kinds of scenes can go on. Oh, neat. So, color scenes versus right. uh, like player-led scenes versus GM-led scenes. So, the dynamic and the styles of scenes that can go on are budgeted. That's really and that's, I think, even more interesting than the competitive nature. Kind of, kind of like mouse no Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's derived uh, along the, yeah, yeah. that line. Uh, but so there's a few more. Like, like yeah, yeah. There's a few more types of scenes and that kind of thing in there. Yeah. So it's like, I want to have a personal scene. This entire campaign can only have three personal scenes, and God damn it, I'm taking this one. That's neat. Yeah. Thank you, Luke. Um, yeah. Any more questions? I mean, competitive to, is good. I love it. It's super interesting. But also the fact that uh, it has three acts and you may lose on act two and not do act three. That's okay. So also the first time I wrote, a player is out. Like, if your character is killed, you're out of the game. So liberate. <laughs> um, I love though um, uh, Jason Morningstar's uh, Carolina Death Ball. Because, yes, when a player dies, you're out. Now stand up and you're a ghost whispering in the, sh in the ears of the other players. See, no, I'm like, how do we Go get a coffee or something. It does remind me of Doom of Horrors. <laughs> Yeah. Say say more. Tomb of Horrors. Uh, Tomb of Horrors and going through Tomb of Horrors through whole convention, through whole day. Uh -huh. And from, from the start of the day, whoever dies goes out. That's great. Yeah. Uh, more. 
I mean, I know not everybody likes that. I mean, yeah, yeah. But it's an acquired taste. Especially as a designer. I'm like, yeah. You play my game, you're out of my game. <laughs> uh, uh, so, uh, do we have questions right now? If not, I have a tangent to go off. All right. Um, if you're trying, if you don't want to use currency, and you don't, is that like win or lose versus the GM and the player? And you, um, wait, wait, start over. Sorry, um, Tom Fred is setting in early. If you don't want to use currency and you don't want to leave it a chance, it's not GM versus player, but you want to up the ante a bit. Is it easier to just push them to the risk or give it or um, offer the GM a risk tier? Because that's what I was thinking. Because I mean, with with um, pushing them, it would be uh, I I assume it'd be easier to give um, um, the GM examples of risks, but then they'd have to create their own, and that makes the GM have to think hard. Whereas if you get like a like give them a standard tier of like if they decide to do it diplomatically or violently um, and branch it off from there to there, like what would you suggest that? Well, if I'm the GM, I'd rather have a list. Okay. But uh, but that's that's me. That's you. That's you. Okay. <clears throat> you can take a full. And when you're the GM, which do you prefer? Oh, I'm, well, this is um, for me um, writing how to run my game, so I wasn't sure, because I know how to run my... I mean, it's, it's like, I'm good at like, thinking at the plot on the fly anyway, but I know not all GMs run that when they need someone to like tell them, like, if the characters do A, do A. I, I think you should demand that the GM step up. Step up. However you do it, okay. um, you should, like, be kind to me, but expect me to step up. Okay. That's what I um, One way that I've seen this work has been clumping the GM moves into conceptual sections. Foster emotion, uh, threaten, separate, uh, bribe, or question. These are the these are the things you can do. And just by giving the, the giving the large buckets, it's enough to reduce the cognitive load. It's like, okay, so I'm questioning. Okay, what am I questioning about? Okay, I can Within that limited scope, that's an easier place to direct your attention okay. without having to worry about the detailed point economies of building up your how your questioning budget. Um, so yeah, um, is is it more useful to uh, say uh, the GM must do this, or is it more useful to say the GM can't do this? I have opinions about that. <laughs> Please. I think it's not useful to say either. Okay. I think you have to make it inevitable that the GM do that. Um, you, do, you do that by arranging the GM's interests um, so that that is what the GM chooses to do every single time. Um, and that's, that's challenging stuff, but uh, I don't think a game text can ever actually give you permission or actually put expectations on you just by saying, here's what you're allowed to do, here's what you're expected to do. You always say, your own games, you always say this. Uh, I do always say this. Wait, wait, wait. Um, and if you're in, in Apocalypse in World, Apocalypse World it says always say. Uh, but that is a piece of orientation to how the system works, it's not an instruction. You know what I mean? I don't know, nobody can possibly know what I mean when I say <laughs> nonsense like that. Um, let, me, let me try again, give me a second. Um, 
So, when you say, this is what we're playing to find out, at that moment, the GM buys into that, or is playing a different game. And so, at that moment, it's now either a done deal, or it's out of your hands, right? And so, once the GM is bought into what you're playing to find out, then you can say, and here's what the system requires of you. And it's appropriate to say, you know, the system now expects you to uh, always speak the truth or say, make your move without speaking its name, or, you know, whatever, always always say what your prep demands, always say what honesty demands, always say what rules demand. Um, but that isn't instructions to the GM that you have to follow. That is what the game expects you to do as you're pursuing your agenda. And so once the GM is bought into that agenda, all of the rest of your design falls into place behind it. And if the GM doesn't buy into that agenda, there is no amount of always say what the rules demand, always say what your practice demands that can make the GM do that. Um, so on that note, uh, one thing that I find interesting uh, at, to disagree with Vincent slightly is prohibitions make it really easy for people to intentionally rub against that wall. So you can never, uh, your characters can never kill the PCs. Means that you're incentivizing the GMs to make the lives of the PCs hellish. So you're effectively implicitly saying, so you that's the fruitful void that like that's an interesting place for you to focus your attention because you can't do you can't kill the PCs, but you can uh, poke at the things around that restriction. Batman cannot kill. Right. But kneecaps are a separate thing. That that's that's sort of the how the mechanics can do that. If that's the kind of dynamic you want in play, prohibitions can be interesting ways of Well but okay, so are you talking about a game where the game's mechanics make it possible for NPCs to kill PCs, but the instructions to the GM are don't do that? Because that is a super interesting thing and a different question from game mechanics where the NPCs can't kill the PCs. You see what I'm saying? Right. Um, or, like, you could have a, you cannot initiate murder of a PC. But do the rules allow you to initiate murder No, it, you could say the rules don't allow you to initiate no, the murder no. of a PC. Like, but that's... So you engineer situations so that they initiate. But I can, I can design a game, right? Yeah. And in that game it says, to have an NPC murder a PC, follow these rules. As a GM, you're not allowed to do that. That's super interesting. Oh, yeah, right? Yeah. Super interesting. Oh, yeah. Um, and it creates this tension and this crisis in the in the game's, you know, this disagreement between the game's rules and the game's instructions. Well, super interesting. Yeah. Will it be the PC asks NPC is, to kill a PC? Uh, what? It basically, for me, immediately jumps to, let's say I am PC, I'll ask NPC to kill another PC because I can do that. Like PCs can't kill each other, but well, they can do my proxy. Like, like yeah, whatever. Yeah. I'm talking about this this disagreement between what the rules say you can do and what the instructions say you can do. 
that's in every World of Darkness book, where they go for all the damage stuff, then they say character death, and they say, set it up to be a dramatic scene, and let the players sort of decide when they're ready for this to happen. After you've read the third <laughs> after, So, so right. you roll all the damage, you kill the guy, and then step back and say, well, do we really kill him? Or do we have a big funeral? Do we have a, a going away scene? They tell you, kill the guy, but then back up and assess if you really meant to do that. That's interesting. And, like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say yay or nay to white wolf games, but that is potentially fruitful design territory. Like, that's super interesting. And if, if a game were built around that idea, what could that game do? That's really neat. Uh, in the board game space, and, and uh, like, risk legacy and stuff, uh, so you encourage like modify the words play for a while and follow the reference on how each word is modified. But there's one book that says never open. Yeah. And when you do, it's always something god awful that's basically a the world is doomed with plagues, alien babies, and that sort of stuff. And it strikes me that this same thing is like the no go like don't do this thing might work as a once you play everything else it's sort of encouraged with once people done everything they're supposed to do in the game. That sort of suggests itself as what else are you like what else supposed to do? Which might be another example of a fruitful like area that yeah, yeah. The, the, the game doesn't say, hey, do this after everything else, but with just once you've done everything else, there's the thing you're told you not to do, but let's do. Yeah. Uh, back here and then uh, just really quick, I'm wondering if you have any uh, non game rule books that you would recommend for learning about yeah. Non-game rule As in, books. like, not part of a game system, not part of a game For system, learning like, you don't look this explicitly about GM. Like GMDs? I don't know. Um, I, I don't think there's such a thing as GMing that's not part of a game system. I think that we like this illusion that there's such a thing as a GM that's transportable from game to game. But I'm I'm weird like that. Like don't don't take my word for it. I I can tell you I was in a book about improvisational GM. Um, I have an essay in there that I like. Uh, it's called Unframed. Uh, by uh, an engine publisher. Engine. Yeah. Engine publishing has a bunch of GM advice books like Never yeah. Prepared, which yes. is about preparing the game. Uh, honestly, campaign management and also. So they have a bunch of good GM tips. So um, look up look up engine publishing and see what you think. And if you want to go a little further afield, there's a lot of academic areas of interest on uh, how people make decisions <laughs> and read up on that uh, management. Uh, the fifth discipline, for instance, is a business related book that talks about systems theory and cascades and all sorts of interesting GM systems and mechanics that. I found extremely interesting. Um, yes? So, I'm, so, I'm sorry if you can't hear me, I'm a little worse. I've been screaming in Spanish for two days. Sure. Um, but, so that's like, so prohibition of like, NPCs can't kill characters is something that's like very much an action within the game. But like, what about like a mechanical, you cannot do this, like the, the GM cannot, there are no NPCs. Like. The GM does not introduce NPCs. There are no NPCs. Nobody plays NPCs. Like, would that kind of prohibition in a kind of game that has just player characters as the focus of the things 
be something that you would want to look at from the side of like a rule or from the side of an agenda? Well, if the game has no rules for NPCs, then it's not, then saying don't introduce NPCs is orientation to the rules. Yeah. It's not, it's not a, a rule itself. Yeah, you know it's what like I mean? letting people know. Like, it's saying, oh, by the way, you, you won't do this, you can't do this, there's no such thing as this. Yeah. Um, you might be expecting this, but don't like don't expect it anymore. This does not okay. not on the table. Um, and I think that's a slightly different thing from there are rules for NPCs, yeah. but it's against the rules to make one. Yeah, I just um, wanted to see yeah. what you think that was actually for. Okay, thank you. Um, this idea of instruction versus orientation yeah. this is something that works really beautifully in my head, and I have no confidence that I can communicate about it. I think you did. Oh, good. All right. So I think we need to wrap this up yep. because we have a constraint, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, it enforces brevity. So thank you very much. Thank you.